chapter 11. We're going to continue our, our series through the Gospel of Mark. And as you're turning there, I want you to understand something. This, this passage, what we're going to see unfold, it's not a real popular passage. It's not one you've probably committed to memory. But it addresses something that we often don't really like to talk about, and that's hard-heartedness. We call hard-heartedness a lot of different things in the church. We say, we say it's pride or stubbornness or, you know, even in some cases, envy. But hard-heartedness, when we really begin to look at it and you look in Scripture and you look at the, the people that are known for being hard-hearted, who's the first person that almost always comes up in the discussion? Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But if you read the story, if you go through the plagues, it's about six, seven, seven plagues in to the Exodus narrative that God steps in and hardens Pharaoh's heart. Every time, every plague, everything that happens before that, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And at some point, God gives him over to his hardened heart and just hardens it further. The thing is, Pharaoh saw the evidence of what Moses and Aaron would, would teach and say and preach and all this. They saw the miracles. They saw the Red Sea turn to blood. Uh, Pharaoh saw Moses' staff turn into a snake and his magicians or wizards or whatever you want to call them. They perform the exact same thing and he sees Moses' staff eat theirs. He, he sees the greater evidence, and yet he still hardens his heart. And what we see in our text today is something eerily similar amongst the religious elite of Jesus' day. They've seen the evidence. They've seen the miracles, the constant, consistent miracles. Jesus heals the blind. When John's disciples come to Jesus, they say, who are you? The first thing Jesus says is, the blind see. Because in that moment, only in the Old Testament is God, only God is described as being the one who heals the blind. Elijah never heals the blind. Elisha never heals the blind. Uh, no other prophet does this, but God says he will. And so in that moment, Jesus is saying to the disciples of John the Baptist, you know who I am. He's pointing to his divine nature. And if John's disciples got that message, as the saying goes, you can bet your sweet biffy that the Pharisees also got that message, that they knew what that meant. I don't know what a biffy is, so if that offends anybody, I forgive me, please. But. So we come to our text today, and we're going to go ahead and read. If you will, stand with me as we read this this morning for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 27, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what, by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, <sighs> They were afraid of the people. 
For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. By what authority? You may be seated. By what authority? That's a question we have to ask. By what authority do we proclaim Christ? By what authority do we share the gospel? Do we love our neighbor? Do we pray for our enemies? Do we do these, whatever it is we do? By what authority do we act in Christ? Well, is it just simply we, because we tag Christ's name on it, we say Jesus in Jesus' name and therefore we, we go forward? Or by what authority do we move? By what authority do we preach? Do we sing? All these things. That's, a, what's, that's what's at stake, really. Answering that question. And as you look at this passage and you study it, the one thing I hope you take away this week as you, as you review this, as you go back in your notes, as you look back, the one thing I hope you remember is simply this. It's not that they didn't see and understand. It's that they refused to accept the truth of it. The reluctance to believe, not the inability to comprehend, is what hardens hearts. I'll say that again. The reluctance to believe, not the inability to comprehend, is what hardens hearts. These men knew. These men saw the evidence. They processed all of it. But they refused to let it bring them into a faith in Christ. They refused to allow that to move them into belief and trust And so we ask, what's at stake? Well, the same problem that the religious leaders have, we often find within ourselves. We will never be able to see the evidence and let it lead us to belief if we're not willing to let it do that. If we're reluctant to allow it to, we may see it and understand it, but does the understanding change our heart? There's this myth that goes around, and it is a myth of atheists being so incredibly intelligent. And it's almost as if we're portrayed Christians, believers, anyone, anyone who carries a lick of faith in a, in a divine being, they're portrayed as if they, they wear bibbed overalls to uh, their workplace every day, carry a 12-gauge shotgun, have three teeth. You know the picture I'm portraying, right? The, the redneck, unbeliever, silly, dumb, gullible, naive believer and the super-intelligent atheist. And the flip side of that is also a myth. They're just people like us. Now, there are some very intelligent people who do not believe in Christ, but there are also some very intelligent people who do. John Lennox, William Lane Craig, just to name a couple brilliant people. Most of the most brilliant scientists in the world, by the way, are people of faith. Because they've examined the evidence and the truth of it has changed their hearts. The, the other idea of just this brilliant uh, atheist going to swap me down with all of his brain smarts, it's just, it's silly. Some of you who come on Wednesday nights, you've heard this story before about my sister, Avery. She was dating this guy. His name was Aaron, and I don't care if she gets mad about me telling this story or not. She's my sister, comes with the territory, right? I'll put a quarter in her jar, uh, the illustration jar. Um, she gets 25 cents. Anyway, uh, 
we were still, Jennifer and I were freshly married. We were living in Ellendale. And I don't remember the full context of this story. I know there was a, a dust up with my other sister and stuff. And so I was calling Avery about it. And, and she puts this guy Aaron on the phone. Now, how do I say this? He was a very blunt individual. And it goes something like, the conversation goes something like this. Well, Jeffrey, I know you go to Bible college. You don't get to call me Jeffrey. You're the boyfriend. You're not family, okay? I didn't say that. I thought it. Let it slide. Let it slide, Jeff. Anyway, well, Jeffrey, you go to Bible college, and you're, you're a Christian. You're going to be a pastor. I just want to let you know I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of that stuff. He goes, nothing you're going to say to me is going to change my mind about anything. You know what I said? Nothing. I laughed. In fact, I laughed a lot because this guy, I could already tell, he's not an atheist. He's not. I, he goes, what's so funny? And I said, well, Aaron, to be completely frank with you, you're not smart enough to be an atheist. You think I'm stupid? That is not what I said. I said, you're not smart enough to be an atheist. In fact, uh, Frank Turek and Norm Geisler wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, but we'll get to that later. I said, you're just not smart enough to be an atheist. What do you mean then? You think I'm dumb? I said, no, no, no. You're telling me that you've studied physics, metaphysics, astrophysics, mathematical probabilities, geographical uh, impacts on the adaptation of, of a species. I said, have you studied intelligent design? Have you studied probabilities? Have you studied geometry? Well, no. So then you're not smart enough to be an atheist. Because to be an atheist, you're telling me you've searched the cosmos and come away saying there's no creator. There's no intelligent being behind all of this. And it's a greater minute than you have tried to do such things and come away saying there's got to be a God. Anthony Flew, who debated William Lane Craig about this very topic, he said, I may not be a Christian, but I have to submit to the idea there is an intelligent designer of this universe. The math just points to it. I mean, the idea of this table just one day springing up out of the platform versus Pastor Jeff brought it in here. Which one makes more sense? Which one's more probable? But the atheist would say, nope, had to have grown out of the ground, right? But they're so intelligent. It's a myth. So we have to ask them, well, I, I know enough people who claim to not believe, and they have such hardened hearts. What's the, what's the key to getting into their, into their life? What's the key to, to breaking down that hardened heart? Can I tell you, it's very simple. It's the love of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit tilling the soil of their heart is the penetrating truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks down their walls and so much more that God does as we love them and give them the truth the ability to understand is not the problem it's refusing to accept the truth that hardens their hearts and we go back to verse 27, and it reads, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. 
Now this picks up where our story left off a couple of weeks ago. If you recall, Jesus had cursed the fig tree and he explained all of that and, and they were on their way into Jerusalem. This is the same day as that morning when Peter had pointed out the fig tree was no longer bearing fruits, that it had withered all the way down to its roots. Now Luke 20 verse 1 is going to tell us Jesus is doing more than just walking in the temple. He's preaching. He's teaching the people. And of course this gets the hackles up of the religious elite. This is now the third day in a row Jesus has come into the city and found his way into the temple. The first time he came, he came riding a donkey. There was this impromptu parade. Everybody wanted the people to, to kind of quiet down a little bit. They didn't. Jesus said, even if we try to quiet them, the rocks will cry out and praise me. So, so Jesus just kind of goes on in. He goes to the temple. He inspects it. He leaves town. The next day he comes in. He passes by a fig tree. He thought he was going to get some food off of it. He didn't, so he cursed it, and he comes on into the te temple, and it's all the fig tree is an object lesson about what he does in the temple, if you recall. And he stirs up quite a bit of controversy in the temple as he flips tables, and he, he, there's all this dust up, and all these things happen. He even upset the, the people who were selling the pigeons, Right? And so then he leaves town, and now he comes back. And if we read Mark, he's, he's walking through the temple. This would have been Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. This is still that court of the Gentiles, the same area that he'd cleaned up. And there's got to be, if you're sitting there and you're listening to him, there's got to be this uneasiness, right? Because he just came in and threw stuff around yesterday, and now he's pacing, and he's, he's probably passionately teaching Oh, what's going to happen this time? So, and actually, if you think about it, the idea that he's teaching and preaching, that could be equally dangerous, depending on your point of view. And the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they seek him out. They come looking for him. They were waiting on him to show up. And as soon as he comes to town and gets settled in the temple, they seek him out. They come to find him. These are the same people back in verse 18, the same people who wanted to completely annihilate him. They wanted to destroy him. These are the same people Jesus said back in chapter 10 who would want to kill him and have him put to death. And among these people is likely the highest of the high priests, Caiaphas. Annas, Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us that those were the two men there. It does say the high priest. So we can assume, I think, safely, they are in the crowd ready to debate Jesus. Now, all through his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, these people have sprung up. Now, because it's Pentecost week, they're all together. And so the heavy hitters come out, and they're ready and these are mostly Pharisees. I think I believe it's safe to say they're, they're mostly the Pharisees because the Sadducees are going to shoot their shot in chapter 12. They're going to try and come at him. But they come and they're, they're looking for a confrontation with Jesus. This was a, a planned debate. I, I imagine for weeks they have been setting this up, looking for an opportunity to have this fight, this argument, this sparring, verbal sparring match with Jesus. And probably yesterday solidified it. He's really upset them. He's disrupted the flow of their temple. And so now they come to him, and I imagine the night before they were up late 
like you would cram for an exam and they were sitting around the table and they said, all right, so if he says this, we're going to say that. If he opens his mouth and starts to go this direction, we want to we bring him back around this way. And some guy, maybe it was Caiaphas, let's not give him an opportunity to start the conversation. Let's start it. Let's ask him a question. Let's put him on his back foot right away. Let's come out on the offense. Let's, let's just, you know, I, I get the, forgive me, I get the mental image of a football coach. Let's just drive the ball down the throat, right? Let's just, just right down the middle, make him stop us. And that's, that's kind of the air they come at Jesus with. We're going we're gonna to hit him hard and hit him fast. And then he, he, he'll, he'll recoil. He'll wither. I mean, look at all of us. There's only one of him. If you remember last week in the evening service, Santiago kind of gave us similar advice when talking with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. If they say this, ask them about that. Remember that? If they talk about this, ask them why they don't do this. That's strategy. That's debate strategy. There's nothing wrong necessarily with having a strategy and how you're going to discuss things with people. So they, they come prepared. And then verse 28, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now again, this is not the first altercation they've had with Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 2, they've come to Jesus and they ask him about the Sabbath. And they ask him about fasting. And they ask him about his disciples washing their hands, or why they don't wash their hands, actually. And then in Mark chapter 3, they try to trap him to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. And he ends up doing that and exposes their hypocrisy. And because he, he exercises a demon out of a man, they come and they start accusing him. They say his authority, his power comes from the devil himself, Beelzebul. In Matthew's account, he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They're going to be your judges. But if it is by the Holy Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come, up, come upon you. And here's the thing. He's telling them in that moment who his authority rests with. If he's doing this by the Holy Spirit of God, recognize that. They don't want to. They see the, the exercised person. They see the effects of the miracle. But they don't want to recognize where the authority came from. So they recoil. At least publicly, they're not going to give him any ground and admit he is who he says he is. But the truth of the nature is, through all these altercations, Jesus has repeatedly answered this very question. He's done it various times, various ways, and yet they refuse to hear it. They refuse to see the evidence. So they come again and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? The authority there, that word authority is the Greek word exousin, and it means by what gives you the freedom to act is really what they're asking. Or we would say this, by what right, by what right do you say what you say? By what right do you do what you do? No matter the truth, they refuse to accept it. They refuse to listen to it. Again and again, he'd explained it. He demonstrated it. He defended it. No. They don't want to accept it. They don't want, to, they don't want that. 
He has taught with authority all along. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, it says the crowd is astonished because he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes taught. And so he's continuing to do this. In fact, and I've pointed this out before, but 75 different times throughout the Gospels, Jesus is going to begin a statement by saying, truly I say to you, that is rabbi language, but no rabbi says that to begin a statement. They say it after they are sure what they have said, after they have tested what they've said, because they don't want to say something wrong or inaccurate. Jesus begins his statements with this statement. He begins teaching by saying, truly I say to you, because he is the ultimate authority, because he is the source of his authority. He is divine. He's proven his authority to forgive sins back in Mark 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. When he told the paralytic that his sins had been forgiven, that gets, everybody gets upset about that. He says, well, just so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. And what happens? He gets up. He's healed. So the question isn't, in that moment, by what authority? Because he's demonstrated by what authority. They're just refusing to accept it. Now, even after his resurrection, he's going to come to the disciples, and he's going to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But if we, if we just focus on that, We'd miss something here. They say, by what authority do you do these things? What are these things? Now, in the immediate nature of the question, he's teaching, he's preaching. He's kind of set up shop in the temple, right? He's walking around in the Gentiles area, and he's been teaching and preaching. And what did he do the day before? Oh, yeah. He cleaned up their mess, right? He disrupted business. He stopped them lining their pockets off the Gentiles and abusing the, the nature of, of selling and buying things within the temple. So by what authority do you do that? Really, what their question, if we were really to, you know, the message this or, or, or really simplify what they're saying is, who died and made this your temple? This is their temple. This is their station, their place to run, their religion to, to orchestrate. Who told you it was okay to come in here and flip tables? You really upset Gary and his pigeon table. You know, who gave you that authority to do that? They're so focused on that. They don't look at the whole picture. I want to point one thing out. Never in this question or in their interaction with him the day before, never, ever did they admit he was wrong. Never did they say, Jesus, you shouldn't have done that. It was something that needed to be done if we were going to be about holiness in the temple. Never do they say, Jesus, you shouldn't have picked on poor Gary in the pigeon table. No, they just say, why did you do this? Who do you think you are? It's not the fact that he's wrong. It's the fact they didn't like that he did it. They didn't like how he went about doing it. And so they're upset about that. 
So they come looking for a debate, a confrontation, a tussle, a Donnybrook, whatever you want to call it. They are ready for a fight because they're upset. And they think they're going to catch Jesus. Of all people in all of history, they think they're going to catch him off guard. Look at his reply. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I will ask you one question. Technically, they've asked him two. Now, before we go any further, I want you, just everybody in the room, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Okay? Please. A little group participation here. Don't raise your hand. Okay? Just, I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to say anything. When's the last time you studied this passage? Probably it wasn't recently, right? When's the last time you saw this passage? I say this, and of course, Josh Fralick, a friend of mine, he posted the entire passage to Facebook today just to be obstinate, I guess, but not many times, right? When you go to Hobby Lobby, do you see this text hanging on your bathroom wall? Right? Is this an encouraging passage that you're going to want on a coffee cup? When's the last time you've meditated or really thought about this? How many of you today, okay, you can open your eyes now. How many of you today... When we're done with this passage, you're going, oh man, I want that on a coffee cup. I want that on some towels. That's so good. That's such a rich text. It's so encouraging. I feel so, nobody does that. Nobody reads this text and goes, man, how powerful is that? Now, throughout this series, this, this Mark series, I've had several of you come to me after, and, and I've gotten some emails and some texts. Pastor, I have never thought about Jesus in that light. I'm so glad you're doing this. This, this passage really spoke to me today. Um, that's awesome. That's powerful. That's great. That's why we're doing this. But I bet, this is why I asked you to close your eyes, I bet if you've ever read this text before, when you read Jesus' response, if you really thought about it, your, your first response to Jesus' response would have been, uh-uh, they asked you first. How many of you ever done that? Somebody comes to you and they ask you a question and, wait a second, why are you asking me this? Uh-uh, answer the question. Yes or no, I asked you first. Anybody, now you can raise your hand. Anybody ever hear that? Every, everybody's heard that. Come on, Bronson, raise your hand. You've heard that. Everybody's heard someone say that. I asked you first. Now, sometimes you do that as, as kind of being a smart aleck. Sometimes you do that as a, as a way to derail the conversation. No, we want to stick to the facts. Sometimes uh, I think back to when my wife and I were dating. Sometimes you might even do that a little romantically. Now, do you love me as much as I love you? I don't know. Do you love me as much? No, I asked you first. I asked you second. You know, back and forth. This is a little cutesy thing we do. Sometimes Laura's smiling. Her and Jacob do this all the time. <laughs> People do this. But has it ever bothered you? The Pharisees don't. Why didn't they cut him off and say, uh-uh, no, no, you don't get to do that, Jesus. We asked you a hard question. We want you to answer us first. The reason they don't and I learned this is because in this culture and in this time, this is a very common debate tactic. In order for them to get their answer, they have to earn it. They have to prove they're intellectually his equal. 
He's a rabbi. He's, in, he's within his rights to demand this of them. No, I won't answer your question until you've answered mine. And really what he's saying, if you, if you look at it, he's saying, I will answer all your questions if you can just answer one. That's a pretty big tactic. That's a pretty big, okay, they should be chomping at the bit. All right, what's the question? We got this. We're the religious smartest people in the, in the world, right? That's, that's the way they viewed themselves. Have you noticed, if you go back through Jesus' life, he does this often. When the Pharisees come and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What's Jesus' response? It's a question. Well, what did Moses tell you? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? Answering with a question, by the way, it's, it's, it's a good way to get to the basics, uh, the basics or the, the foundation for why a person is asking you these things. It's called responsive listening. As a probation officer, I went through, I think it was about six weeks of intense training on how to do this. In fact, you can have whole conversations just asking one another questions if you're good at it. This irritates my dad to no end, by the way. About uh, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, he calls me, and I had just gone through all this. And he answers, he calls me, and I pick up the phone. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Do you think I'm doing okay? Well, I thought so. That's why I called. Well, what makes you think that? This goes on for about 15 minutes, and finally my dad goes, you are very inquisitive tonight. You know what my reply was? How do you know what inquisitive means? Stop it, Jeffrey. Stop it. He's family. He can call me Jeffrey. Stop it. So I tell him what I've been doing all week and all for the past few weeks, and, and this is what I've been learning. And that's interesting. And later in the conversation, about 30 minutes later, we're still talking, and I ask him a sincere question. And he goes, hey, don't start that again. You know, because he was so, you, but when you do this, it's a great way to get information out of somebody or understand your audience, understand who you're talking to. And Jesus models that for us. But this is also very, I want to be very clear, it's very normal for the culture and the time. And note, like I said, he's basically saying to them, I'll answer all of your questions if you could just answer one of mine. He puts a limit on himself. He gives them free range. He gives them the advantage. They said, by what authority? Or who gave you the authority? And they come to set a trap for him. But he's not really setting a trap for himself. Uh, himself. He's not setting a trap for them at all. In fact, when we read verse 30, this was his question. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. This is not a trap. This is an honest question for them to answer. In fact, this is really an opportunity for them to do the right thing. This is an opportunity for them to come clean with all they've suspected, all they've seen, all they've known, and air it all out. This is their chance to admit what they know to be true. But because of their own deceitful nature, they're suspicious of Jesus. They're not going to answer his question. 
Notice the emphasis of Jesus' question, though. It's not on the teachings of John the Baptist. It's not on the clothing of John the Baptist. It's on the baptism of John the Baptist. I mentioned those other two things because those are what he was kind of known for. But his baptism. Why was it the baptism? Because when John submerged them, they were showing their repentance of sin and being a new creation when they came out of the water. That was the whole purpose of it. And to be able to be a new creation, how, how are we a new creation? In Christ. John was paving the way for Christ. In fact, that's what John says he was all about. If you go to John 1, if you want to turn your Bible real quick, John 1, verse 22, they're quizzing John, and they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John's reply is, he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So when he answers this, he is testifying of Christ's divine nature. He's, he's there only to make the way for Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. Verse 26 and 27, it says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's talking clearly about Jesus. And the next day, where the Pharisees are still there, Jesus comes forward. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. How is he before John? John's the older cousin, right? Because he's eternal. Because he's divine. Because he's God. And the Pharisees had to have seen that exchange. Some of the men who were there to question Jesus in that moment were there the day he was baptized. They were there to hear John's message about baptism. And so they know what he's referencing. And in a fact, in a way, in Jesus' question, he answers their question. If John is really from God, then so's Jesus. If John's from men... They should have opposed him a lot stronger than they did. But if they admit John was sent by God, they would have to validate Christ. They would have to validate Jesus. And they'd be held accountable by God for their actions towards John and their actions toward Jesus. It's God, by the way, it is only God who commissions prophets. John was a prophet, or at least the people believed him to be one. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, I'll raise up a prophet. And he's talking to Moses, like you, among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth. Only God raises up the prophet. Second Chronicles, Judah's told, believe in the Lord your God and you'll be established. Believe his prophets and you'll succeed. So if they're going to admit, really, the real question isn't even, was John from God? It's, was John a prophet? Because if he was a prophet, then he was from God. It just follows. Now, there are going to be negative consequences for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, however they answer. We've established that. We've seen that. If John's from God, they lose. If they say, God was, or if they say John was from men, the people are going to turn on them, as we're going to see, verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. 
You see what they're doing? This is halftime. The game didn't go the way they wanted. So now they've got to re-strategize. They get back the word discuss. In, in the Greek, it's where we get the English word dialogue. If you have a dialogue with somebody, that's typically not a short conversation. It's a lengthy discussion. And so these guys are having this lengthy talk. In fact, the tense of the Greek here means they took their time. We don't know how long these men said, hold on, time out. All right, now, if we say this, he's going to say that. It's the same discussion they'd likely had the night before all over again. Let's retool. Let's, let's replan. Let's start over. You see what's happened? They came to debate Jesus, and now he has them debating amongst themselves. The debate strategy fell apart. If we say this, he could say that. It should be an easy answer. Why are they taking so long? Why, why even discuss this? It's because they were afraid. They were afraid of the people. Either John was from God or he wasn't. The law had established if he was a prophet, if he was from God, then that's what he was. That's, what, that's it. It's settled. So was John a prophet or not? They don't want to say that. They want to play ignorant. They don't know what will happen with their answer. They were afraid of the people. And they're afraid of Jesus. We established that back in verse 18. They feared Jesus because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They're so afraid of men. They're so afraid of people. Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can destroy your body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy your soul. But Jesus is really, he's exposing something here. To everybody who's watching, these men were unfit for the position of leadership they'd been in. Their political mindedness caused them to fear those they were in charge of leading. The best leaders, by the way, are, are followed because they're respected. Because people are loyal to them. And they're typically loyal and they typically respect a leader because the leader has demonstrated his own sacrificial love, his own loyalty towards them. That's what inspires loyalty. There's a great story about Alexander the Great. He goes on the march to conquer, and he comes across this kingdom that had never been conquered before. And he doesn't even go to battle. He just stops his army, and he sends an emissary into the castle. And he carries a letter, I'll accept your surrender. And the king sends back, nobody's ever conquered us. Why should I surrender to you? You're not even drawn up for battle. And Alexander writes back, same day, tomorrow morning, look out your window to the east. And to the east, there was this very high cliff. And he lines his men up single file the next morning. And when he's sure the king is watching, he gives instructions to march. And the men begin to march forward. And one by one, they walk off the cliff and fall to their deaths. About 10 men die. And he, see, he stops he stops his army, and he sees a flag coming from the, other, the, from the castle. It's waving the surrender. Because a man who can inspire loyalty within those who love him enough to die for him, well, that type of guy could conquer the world. And Jesus' followers will die for him. 
all the disciples, save Judas, will suffer for him. John, the revelator, of course, will, will suffer but not die a martyr's death. The Pharisees could not understand that kind of loyalty because they've only ever led with fear and manipulation, not love and respect. They belittled the people. They tried to keep the people down and keep themselves up. There's no way they could understand the type of loyalty Jesus and John the Baptist had instilled in the people. You see, Jesus comes along and he heals, he touches, he teaches, he feeds, he eats with them, he loves them, and so the people love him back. They hang on every word he says to them. The only way out at this point for the Pharisees who thought they were going to corner him, who thought they were going to trap him, the only way out for them is if they humble themselves and admit they were wrong. If they admit that John was from God, that Jesus was from God, it could all be settled, it could all be over, but no. Their ability to comprehend these things is just fine. It's their resistance to believe, their resistance to trust, to have faith, to learn, to grow, to change. This has hardened their hearts. So we go to verse 33, it says, So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is not being petty. He's not saying, well, you didn't answer my question, so I don't have to answer your question, neener, neener. It's nothing like that. They've not earned the answer. This is the way you would debate. This is how you would engage in this day and time. And they have proven themselves unworthy of his answer. So Jesus is free to, to ignore them, to not answer them. But more than that, Jesus has just exposed, of the most learned men in Israel, he has exposed their ignorance. He's humiliated them in front of the people in the temple. They had home court advantage, and he just had a blowout victory. Now, Jesus is going to answer their question. In the next chapter, he gives a parable, uh, the parable of the tenants, and in verses 6 and 7, he's very clear his authority comes from the Father. He doesn't hide. He never has hidden who or where his authority has come from. He calls himself openly, calls himself the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. He accepts worship from his disciples. When Bartimaeus called him the Son of David, that was a messianic title. And Jesus didn't stop him. Jesus didn't correct him because it's true. Earlier, in, in chronological order, Jesus had said, I and the Father are one in John 10, 30. That's before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And because he says that, they don't want to accept it. They don't ask him to explain himself. They pick up rocks to stone him. He makes it no secret. And yet they come to him again and again and again because they refused to allow what they knew to be transformed into faith. And to trust. Church, so many people are like this, even today. They'll always be this way. With hardened hearts, they'll say, I see all the evidence, but I'll never accept it. I don't like it. I don't want it. Frank Turek, I mentioned him earlier. He is a Christian apologist, and he'll sometimes debate atheists 
And he'll open the debate with this question. If I give you all the evidence there is to prove Jesus Christ is and was who he said he is and was, and it's beyond a shadow of a doubt, the, the, the evidence is so conclusive that he is the Son of God, that died on a cross for your sins, that rose from the grave. If I give you all that evidence and show you how it's all true, then will you believe? And Turek says, without exception, almost 99% of the time, I guess, they look at him and they say, even then I won't believe. You see, it's not a thinking problem. It's a heart problem. It's a hard heart that causes this. And you know the worst place this happens is within the church. When we become so hard-hearted, There are those who try to warn others, expose the, the charlatans, the hucksters, the false teachings, false apostles, false prophets, bring it to light, talk about their scandalous acts that take place behind the scenes, all of that stuff. And they get called discernment bloggers and heresy hunters and things like that. Worse, they get called Pharisees. To quote the rapper Shay Lin, we label them as Pharisee because the only heresy is exposing heresy these days. We don't like it. In fact, recently it was just told by, by a district person that when Christians argue, the world stands by and claps their hands. Were they clapping their hands in Galatia when Peter confronted Paul? I'm sorry, switch that. Paul confronted Peter. No, the world doesn't notice these things. It's a coward's way out. It's a way to not have these discussions. We dismiss it. We say they've got a religious spirit. But the real Pharisee of our day, if we're really honest, look at the way the Pharisees were, what they did. We see them in the church even today. They will cling to the traditions of men. Well, I was told this once, and so I'm going to cling to this belief. They're going to avoid the authoritative foundation of Scripture entirely or twist it to their means and base their beliefs off experience rather than the inspired sufficient word of God. That's the Pharisee of today. They comprehend, but no matter how much the evidence is piled up, they'll refuse to believe it. Their hardness of heart always wins. I've dialogued with many of them. By what authority could you say this, Scripture? Well, your reading of the Scripture and Scripture's reading of Scripture, and I'll show them the verses that harmonize and say the same thing over and over. Well, by what anointing do you, do you preach or teach? Um, scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's anointed. That's sufficient. That's enough. And where's the power? Scripture. The Word of God. And they'll continue to deflect and ignore and refuse to submit to the authority of Scripture. The reluctance to believe hardens their hearts. I'm going to move to close in just a minute. But church, we can all be this way, the pastor included. I can be very hard-hearted. I can be unteachable. To be unteachable is to be unreachable, and it rhymes, so it has to be true. Nobody laughed. You're still awake, right? We get stubborn in our comfort zones. We are stubborn in our pride. And no matter what, we think, I know better. I was uh, sent a clip by a friend of mine from Arizona, and he said, 
Pastoring is like this sometimes. And it was a clip from a TV show. It's no longer on the air where this mob boss goes to his shrink, his, well, he calls her a shrink, sorry, his psychiatrist. And he's told her all his business. And she begins to say, and he's having panic attacks. He passes out from panic attacks. And his therapist begins to say, well, have you tried this? Or have you, have you talked to your wife about how she makes you feel? And have you talked to your employees about how they make you feel? Because he's a mob boss. She knows he's a mob boss. And I use quotation fingers for employees. And he just says, you know what, lady? Stop right there. I've done a semester and a half at community college. So I know all about how this Freud stuff works. All right, forget the fact she'd got her doctorate, eight years degree, or eight years and all that in, in school and learning and all the things she had to go through. He'd done a semester and a half a community college, so he knows how it works. Hear that all the time. I went to Sunday school. I've been to VBS. I live in the Midwest. I'm in the Bible Belt. I know all about Jesus. Kind of reminds me of a guy who said, I, I know what I need to know. I'm an atheist. It's a different side of the coin. The word of God should convince us. The word of God should break our hearts. Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts be opened. Ezekiel spoke of our hearts of stone being made into lumps of flesh, soft flesh. It's not the mind that's the problem. It's the heart. More often than not, it's the heart. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. We're going to close in a song. And this morning, I would ask you to stand as we sing and ask this question of the Holy Spirit. Where is my heart? How hard is my heart today? Does my heart need softened? If Christ were pointing at my idol today, my place of comfort, my seat of power, if Christ were to point at that, would I say, Lord, take it, cleanse it, cast it down, destroy it, do what you have to do? Or would we look at him and say, by what authority do you think you can cleanse my temple? Pray and ask this this morning as we close in worship.